You must be at least 18 years of age to listen to the following podcast. I am Robert Black, and you are listening to Sexual Heroes. My guest in this episode, Richard Sprott, is a leather family patriarch, has won two leather titles, and currently runs the San Francisco Leatherman's Discussion Group's mentoring program. He also just happens to have a PhD in developmental psychology. His life has been chock full of service to and research on the leather BDSM kink community. He co-authored the book Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. He is Executive Director of the Community Academic Consortium for Research on Alternative Sexualities, and he is Research Director of the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance, TASHRA for short. In 2016, TASHRA implemented the National Kink Health Survey, the first of its kind. Hi, Richard. Thank you for being on Sexual Heroes today. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So something caught my eye the other day. Someone had posted something about some training that was being offered to healthcare professionals around caring for the kink community. I looked a little further and found you, and then looked a little further and found out about some research that you did. And that is what led me to have you be on the show today. You're also part of the kink community, correct? Yes. I I trace my roots in the kink community back to uh, 1990. That's when I really started exploring in the San Francisco kink community. And so, obviously, that's where your interest lies in the study, I'm guessing, and how it began and where your career has led you? Well, actually, it was about, really about 2005, 2004, when I decided to make a major shift in my career. I'm a developmental psychologist, so I was doing a lot of child development stuff. And in 2004, 2005, I was really wanting to integrate my life a bit more. At that particular point, I was pretty involved in the San Francisco King community and decided I want to integrate my professional life with my casual, fun sort of uh, life with the King community. So I made the switch from essentially doing child language acquisition to sexual identity development. That's primarily my focus. And then yeah. It leads to considerations over health and well-being. So I've been doing a lot of kink health, kink psychological well-being studies since about 2005. Well, that was a big switch. Do your colleagues know about your personal life, your, uh, your, the kink side of you? I would say some do, some don't. I don't make a big deal of it. I also don't necessarily try to hide it. I would say probably a third or a half of the colleagues that I really interact with regularly know that I have, you know, a large leather family 
that I'm the head of and, oh. and that uh, about my involvement in the King community. I've done quite a lot of things, especially, especially in the, in the aughts in the 2000s. I was mm. pretty active. And since then, I've been doing a lot of just focused on my career, my research. And I still do a little bit of work um, and stay connected to the King community. One thing I do on a regular basis is I run the mentoring program for the Leatherman's Discussion Group in San Francisco. People who are relatively new to leather or kink, if they want a mentor, we match them up and we support the mentoring process. We've been doing that since about 2012. Wow. Um, it's been pretty successful. I've been very happy. It's the one way in which I kind of stay active and connected to the King community. Well, that's a great resource for people in San Francisco new to the scene. Yes, we have had quite a number of people come through and it's been, it's been very gratifying. And you've had a couple of leather titles. Back in 2005 and then in 2009, I ran for the San Francisco Leather Daddy title. The focus was really on, on supporting the local community and building it up. So that's what attracted me to even run in the first place. And then in 2009, I, I was awarded a, a Mr. Um, Alameda County Leather. Before we get into the research, just one more thing. You mentioned having a leather family, and this is probably new to at least some of my listeners. Can you just talk a little bit about what a leather family is and maybe a little bit about how far yours reaches? So a leather family, there are lots of different ways in which they're organized. But essentially, a leather family is a network, a collection, a group of people who it's sort of chosen family, right? It's the people that I decide to call family I'm in relationship with. So a lot of it tends to be sort of poly, polyamory, um, multiple relationships. But the leather part is really defined by the fact that we're doing power exchange relationships, dom, sub. I have a leather family that consists of a pup, four slaves, a boy slash dog, <laughs> and another boy. So I have seven relationships in the mm. leather family. Some lucky slave, slaves, pups, and boys there, and a daddy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the research. Okay. Before you began the research, you must have had a hypothesis or hypotheses. What is it that prompted the research? What were you thinking? What were you testing? I have actually probably two major research, ongoing research projects. Mm -hmm. One is focused on health, on the health of the King community. We have been doing research in this area since about, I would say, 2013, 2014. And in 2016, we did uh, the first large-scale kink health survey where we had uh, – about 1,100, 1,200 people who are kink identified complete a very long survey that was just sort of like asking about their general health, experiences of injuries in, in terms of like in the middle of a scene, have you ever been injured, 
or had a medical complication as a result of some sort of kink activity. That's because nobody had ever really done that before. We're in the middle now, pretty close to finishing up the plans for the next kink health survey that's going to be released in probably a couple months, where we're going to be asking a lot more questions. The first one, because nobody had ever done it before, we just asked a lot of questions very broadly, but not very deep. And it was very exploratory. So we didn't have a particular hypothesis in mind. It was just like, so what's out there? How many people, for example, are HIV positive in the King community? How many people have had hep C? How many people have thought about or tried to commit suicide? We asked also a lot of questions about how has kink positively affected your health? So the whole thing was about like 178 questions, asking about experiences with healthcare providers. Do you disclose or not disclose that you're kinky to your therapist, to your doctor? Why or why not? So that's like one big area. And that, again, was more exploratory. This time, when we do it again in 2021, we have the results from the first one. And so we're going to explore that a little bit more. We noted some important uh, health disparities, areas where it seems as if the kink community is more vulnerable than the you know general population. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those uh, were, and it's also because we're going to try to explore, we have so much sexual orientation and gender diversity in the kink community. So many people, you know, feel more accepted or more welcomed in the kink community than in other communities. So there's, we have a large number of, you know, gender diverse transgender people. We have um, a large number of gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, given all of those intersecting identities. You know, I'm kinky and gay. I'm kinky and, you know, queer. Um, Or straight. Or straight. Mm -hmm. They're in there too. Given all of that, there's a lot that's going on in terms of health and experiencing stigma and discrimination and how that affects people's health. So the next one is really going to try to get at and to test whether or not what we saw in the first one is actually there. With the results of the first study, What was most surprising to you, if anything? I would say the thing that alarmed me the most Mm -hmm. was how many people had been hospitalized for a mental health concern and how many people had attempted suicide. We're not sure if any of their experience had anything to do with being kinky. It's just they're in the kink population and they have this, this experience in their past. You know, we found something like 24% of the, uh, our respondents, again, over a thousand people, said they had attempted suicide at some point in their lives. That's one of the things that I um, often work with the Leatherman's discussion group in San Francisco is because San Francisco as a community has also experienced, it's not unusual for there to be one or two suicides every year of people that we know. So this has become a major concern and passion for me is 
really looking at that, the results of the 2016 King Health Survey, when I saw that number, I was, I was really shaken. I was really shocked out of my, mm-hmm. I don't know, ignorance, complacency. Um, well, it certainly jumped out at me when I looked at the summary you sent me. Yes, it, it does. And again, it's like we need to know more about that. We will be looking for better and more information about that next year. We just asked, have you ever? Because we had no idea what people were going to say. So we didn't ask a lot of follow-up questions like, was this before you got into kink? Was this after you got into kink? Have you ever felt suicidal because you're kinky? Rather than, you know, just asking just the blank question, have you ever? This first study ended up raising a lot of questions. Yes. Which, of course, is what it was designed to do. It was exploratory. It's like, mm-hmm. we don't know what the what the landscape is like. Uh, we don't know what the status of people's health in the King community is as a community. That meant, of course, we didn't really know what we would find. What are some of the other standout findings? Actually, we're still um, analyzing some of the data and writing it up right now. And one of them that jumps out to me is... How many people do not come out to their doctors or therapists? Uh, many times it's because they're afraid of being treated poorly. They're afraid of being discriminated against if someone finds out. In our data, only 50%, I think, of our respondents actually told the doctor. So many of them are getting their health information from the community and not necessarily from, you know, doctors or nurses or anything because they don't want to come out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, that's a major issue. Um, Dangerous. Uh, yeah, it can be. I think probably the other thing that really jumps out is the injury rate, the medical complications and injury from doing kinky things. And that stands at about like 13% of people said they had some sort of injury because of a kink scene at some point in their lives. So were you surprised that it was that high or that low? Uh, frankly, I, I had no idea what to expect. Ah. Uh, was I surprised? I'm glad that it's that low, but 13% is still something like, you know, one out of seven, one out of eight people. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to go into the data because we ask people, tell us about it. What happened? There were a lot of um, problems with uh, nerve compression and nerve damage from bondage. Mm. We had a few cases of some fairly, you know, severe like infections because something got torn when they were doing ass play or fisting. Sometimes it was <laughs> a fair number of people uh, falling. Right. They just got off the cross and mm. they're still like, you know, floating, sort of exhausted, sort of, you know, in that sort of subspace or whatever. Right. And they turn around and fall on their face. <laughs> and so people have injuries from falling a lot. There's this general, we're just starting to discover there's some areas that perhaps this would be good for the kink community to know that maybe we really do need to beef up our 
education around safe bondage. We need, do need to let people know what are the more common injuries that do happen. I would say that those areas, injury rate, whether or not you come out to your doctor or your therapist, and the, the suicidality um, are the things that really jumped out from that research. Were there any questions around the psychology uh, or motivation for people to engage in, I'm not sure how to put it, more intense play, more pain play, mm -hmm. sadistic, masochistic play? We have noted that and have sort of tried to think through that question. We didn't really ask about it on the King Health survey. We will in the next one to start to get a sense of why. So we have a bunch of ideas. Like I go to looking at the psychobiology. Uh, in fact, I teach a, I have taught a couple of, um, you know, workshops for the King community on the psychobiology of SM. You know, what's going on in the body? How does the body experience pain and pleasure? Talking about, you know, neurotransmitters and hormones and which parts of the body and the brain are really processing that stuff. And when you look at that, you start to understand why more intense sadomasochistic scenes would have the effect that it has, would have the impact that it has on people and why they would actually experience it as a positive or pleasurable thing. When on the surface, right, from the outside, it doesn't look pleasurable or mm -hmm. positive. But on the inside, you know, when you're in the experience, you, you are. And it's because, you know, there are just certain ways in which our bodies are wired that actually support or lend uh, or make possible um, the experience of things like endorphin highs, uh, sort of, there are several brain states that we, that some of us in the field are looking at. There's one has a very fancy name called transient hypofrontality, mm. which is a say that three times fast. <laughs> I have, I, I've had to practice. Um, transient hypofrontality is when, in essence, you know, the front part of your brain is the place where like consciousness is happening and conscious decision making and the focal point of your awareness, right? Your consciousness in many ways is, is in the, uh, is in the front part. In a lot of different activities, especially if they're, you know, pretty rigorous, uh, physically, like running long distances, um, whole host of things the front part of the brain starts to go quiet. People kind of get a little dreamy or they get a little, you know, trance-like. But the rest of the brain is still like in high activity and really functioning. So all your senses, all your emotions, there's a particular brain state. And people find that brain state to be very rewarding, very you know, you get to turn down or turn off all of the busy talk mm -hmm. that's in your head. I'm very familiar with that state. Okay. Well, th it is a particular brain state. We know what it is and what it looks like. And the only question is, is that's what's going on in a BDSM scene? Mm. And of course, we think the answer is yes. I have some colleagues uh, who really kind of 
specialize in this kind of thing. And they still would love to. In fact, they're still planning on doing a study that really would be like trying to monitor brain states and brain waves in the middle of a scene, in the middle of a, I don't know, a flogging or something. They're hoping to do it sometime soon. Well, I volunteer as a test subject. I will let them know. I know exactly who to tell. I just want to say that this interests me in particular because when I first got into the scene and was engaging in that kind of play, pain play, getting my first, second, third endorphin high, I I would say I was addicted to it. I just, I couldn't get it enough. This came after a long childhood that was less than wonderful and a 15-year relationship that was, I would say, not very healthy. Mm. And then, then I f- ended that and shortly after found the BDSM scene. And when I was engaging in this kind of play, I would rage and cry during a flogging. And I would always say afterwards that it was very cathartic, that it, it was, it felt therapeutic to me. And so I'd be interested to know sometime if that's, you know, can someone say that it's truly therapeutic? I would say it's interesting that you say that because two hours ago I was in a research team meeting where we're trying to design a study that would really look at that specifically. Hmm. Wow. What is it that is healing when people try to use kink for healing? We've been able to document that, you know, guess what? People do that in the kink health survey. Some of the other projects I've done that's been noted that people either have maybe not intentionally done it, but they found that it was healing afterwards. And then some people just like on purpose, right? I'm going to design a scene to really um, address some past trauma Mm -hmm. to confront some issues from way in my past, my childhood or, you know, from early on in my life. People have found that kink is healing. People have done it, have used kink to heal. But we still don't quite know like how many people and what really goes into that. That's definitely on my short list of things to investigate. As I've said, we've got a couple of projects that's going to start addressing that. Well, maybe 10 or 20 years from now, people can go to their therapist to get a flogging. Well, yes. (laughs) I got to say, whenever I talk with uh, kinky therapists, and there's a fair number of them, we often kind of joke about that. It's like, and then, of course, they immediately go, well, you know what? We're not even sometimes allowed to hug our patients or clients, right. let alone, I don't know if we can say, you know, can, can a doctor say, here's a prescription, go get a flogging. Um, <laughs> uh, but I have to say the idea is, is certainly joked about. which yeah, means- And to have insurance pay for it on top of it. Oh, my gosh. That would be great, <laughs> right? So um, <laughs> we're going to have to establish the science in order before the insurance companies do that. Probably. They don't even cover massage. So, you know, uh, I know. was there any kind of complimentary study that was given to healthcare providers around their view of the kink community, their awareness of it, their concern? 
Or is that something down the road? There have been a few things, and most of that has really focused on counselors and therapists. I think there might have been one study that really asked about, like, you know, doctors and nurses and healthcare providers of all different types. It was relatively small, and a lot more needs to be done. There's been a bit more work on on the knowledge and the attitudes of therapists and counselors when it comes to kink. Mm. Uh, you know, lo and behold, guess what? A lot of them feel like they're not well-trained to do this. And about 25% of them just automatically pathologize. They just, well, you're only doing that because of some past trauma or child abuse or something else like that. So they automatically, right, say you're you're sick. Well, what does the DSM say currently about that kind of behavior? The DSM has been evolving slowly. This last round, the DSM-5. Let's clarify what the DSM is. Okay. Well, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So this is the American psychiatrist there manual for how to diagnose something. Up until about a few years ago, there was a category called a paraphilia. And if you had a paraphilia, it was a mental disorder and sexual sadism and sexual masochism and fetishism were in there right alongside voyeurism, exhibitionism, pedophilia, a whole host of things. Mm. And uh, so there was this collection and they were all mental disorders. And then slowly, actually, since the early 1990s, they started putting in things like, well, maybe not everybody who does this kind of stuff, like cross-dressing or, you know, fascination with shoes or boots or Mm. stiletto heels or whatever. Maybe they're not all sick. So they started making statements in there, but it wasn't until this last uh, version that came out a few years ago that said, no, there are people who do this and they're not mentally disordered. The psychiatrist's job is to figure out whether or not there is a mental disorder here or not, even if they're doing these things. So they decided to change it from paraphilia, like as soon as you have a weird sexual interest, right, into a paraphilic disorder. And for them, it's essentially like, are you doing these things and you're not getting consent? That's problematic. Are you doing these things, but you're really, really upset and disturbed that you have these feelings, that you have these fantasies, that you're doing these kinds of things? If you're really, really distressed and it's disrupting your life, then we'll diagnose a paraphilic disorder. It's gotten better in terms of recognizing that Some people do kink and it's not a problem. It's not a sign of mental illness. Yet at the same time, they still have kept this idea that, well, at least for some people, it's probably an expression of some sort of mental disorder or mental illness. Well, I have a hypothesis. What's that? (laughs) What is it? Are you on the edge of your seat? (laughs) (laughs) I hypothesize that maybe 1% of the population is not kinky and truly might be vanilla. I think that 
almost everyone has some thing that might be in the kinky category. Whether they choose to act on it is mm-hmm. a different story. But I think everyone has some thoughts that would fall into some manual of kinks. Well, there actually have been some studies in the past five or 10 years of how many people have, or at least admit to having kinky fantasies or thoughts. The number actually tends to be about 60%, 60 or 65% of the population say they have had fantasies about like being tied up or being ravaged or playfully spanking and whipping people or being whipped. The number of people who like this, of course, all, all self-report, which means you have to like mm-hmm. admit to it, but still the number is like 60, 65, almost 70%. Yeah. Which so, tells me that it's much higher than that. It could be. That, could that's, be I believe that it's much higher than that. The thing that initially caught my eye was the training that you had developed for healthcare professionals around working with a kinky population. Yes. So my question is, you know, looking into the future, how mm-hmm. how would you sell that to the providers? Cuz the ones who probably most need it are the ones who won't take a training like that. Yes. Well, you know, we can't force them to. No, but, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> at least not yet, right? It's not required. <laughs> it's not right. required for your medical license that you mm-hmm. take a class in this kind of stuff. At least not yet. But but generally what we do is we say, these are the number of people who have fantasies about this stuff and they may want to you know, and they may be disturbed by them or just not know what to do with them. And they may want to ask you, uh, these are the number of people who are doing this stuff, right? And these are the number of people who uh, have some sort of injury and medical complication. And these are the number of people who are not coming out to you. So when we, when we go through all of that data on injuries and disclosure to, to medical providers, And then we basically frame it like, you know, here's this population. They're experiencing some unique health challenges and you're not serving them. You're not helping them. And sort of kind of goes back to, you know, the same kind of arguments uh, that you would make about like gay or lesbian people or something like that. It would be, this is a population. It's in your office. It's in your practice more than you think. And they need your help. They need to feel like they can say, you know, I was really doing this weird thing in terms of like a flogging or a fisting. And that's how this injury happened. Instead of like trying to make, come up with, we found some people making very strange stories to cover <laughs> up, you know, I'll bet. And, and the weird thing about it is like the doctors and the therapists, et cetera, they can tell right? That the person's lying. There's no way. I mean, okay. So we had one case of a person talking about, they were um, fisting someone and the other person was very, very tight and they were like twisting and turning and they ended up actually spraining their wrist. Um, So they went to the doctor, they went to the, you know, the physical therapist 
you know, the doctor said, oh, you got a sprain, go to a physical therapist. And the physical therapist said, how did you get this injury? <laughs> and the person started freaking out going, oh my God, I can't tell them that I did it because I was twisting my hand, twisting my arm <laughs> in someone's, inside, ass. In someone's yeah. ass. So they said, um, I don't know. I just, you know, I think I did it when I turned the knob of my front door or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the physical therapist is like looking at them going, you did not have an injury from opening a doorknob. Not this kind of injury, at least. <laughs> but, you know, the person just did not feel like they could be honest about how the injury happened. And, you know, on the part of the physical therapist, it's like, you know, I really need to know how it happened if I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. So, And maybe come up with some exercises so that next time you're better prepared. <laughs> That's right. Got to yeah. limber, limber up. Strengthen it up. That's right. Another study I think I read about on non-monogamy. Can you just tell us a little bit about that study as well? Because my focus is really on kink and BDSM, but there's such a large number of kinky folk who do poly or have open relationships and things. We tended to look specifically at the intersection of that. We've done some work on, and in fact, this was actually part of the 2016 Kink Health Survey too, was we asked people about, you know, do they have multiple relationships? How are those relationships functioning? We asked specifically about, do your kink interests match or not? And what we found was, you know, about 25% of our respondents are in a relationship with married to somebody who is just not kinky at all. So already there's that big issue. And then another 25% who are with someone else who is kinky, but their kinks don't match theirs. They're really, you know, interested in, and they're kinky in different ways. We call that kink discordance. You know, mm -hmm. people are, are not matching when it comes to their kink interests. And how distressing is that? How much problems uh, does that cause? Uh, does that cause? And, uh, so we've looked at things like that and looked at things like, um, satisfaction and levels of jealousy and things like that in kinky poly sort of situations. So that's where our focus has been. Is there any other important finding you'd like the listeners to know about? Well, I've been talking mostly about the kink health survey, which is one of my big projects. Um, I have another big project too, which is much more developmental in nature. And that's about the life paths, the life journeys of people when it comes to kink. When did they start? What are their high points and low points on their kink journeys? Uh, what is, what does it mean to them to be kinky? What is the structure of their kink identity? And a lot of that work finds while some people discover kink later in life and they discover it because in fact, one of their partners or their, their husband, their wife, whatever, their girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, ask them about it or ask them to do it with them. There's still a fair number of people, maybe 15, 20% of people in the kink community who can point to childhood. We have stories of people who like 
discovered that they could put a nine volt battery to their braces and get a shock. And that was like fun. That was sounds it <laughs> sounds like a total turn on. And, you know, and they're like, you know, 10, 11, 12. And then we have other stories of people who I'm kinky and I had no problem coming out because my parents were out as kinky. And I'm like, wow, that certainly wasn't my family growing up. No. Um, but there are people out there who have that experience. And it's, I don't know how wow. common it is, but that's interesting. My point is about all of that. It seems as if some people, their kink really is kind of like a sexual orientation. It's something that's been part of them almost all their lives. It started in childhood or adolescence. It's something if they don't do, they suffer. Repressing it or ignoring it doesn't make it go away. And when you look at it, for at least a certain portion of the kink community, it seems to be pretty hardwired or develops really, really early in life. And it's pretty central to who they are. Part of my work and investigation is really asking the question, is kink a sexual orientation? And I think there's some evidence to suggest it is. Wow. So it's really interesting. So many questions to be answered. I'd love to have you back sometime. I would be happy. Oh, I, you heard I, that, everybody. <laughs> I'll come back and tell you what we found in 2021. That would be great. Um, is there anything else you want to let people know about you? Any a book or a website or anything you want to mention? A number of years ago, along with a sex therapist in San Francisco, David Ortman, uh, he and I wrote a book that was kind of meant to be sort of an intro to kink and therapy. Uh, but we wrote it not just for therapists and counselors, but also just for the general public. That's a book called Sexual Outsiders. I'm in the middle of actually writing up a sort of follow-up book right now, which I hope will come out next year. Uh, but that one will really be focused uh, primarily for therapists and counselors. How do you do good therapy with uh, kinky folk? Thank you very much for being on the show today. All right. My pleasure. For information with links about a guest appearing on Sexual Heroes, visit the show notes at sexualheroes.com or on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow and message me on Twitter at Robert Black XXX and on Facebook at Real Robert Black. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.